Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets for the last 15 years so that you can have the cheat code to succeed with people. This podcast is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. We call that your X factor, and it's what makes you extraordinary. Level up each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so that you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. Let us introduce ourselves. I'm AJ, a recovering introvert, cancer biologist, and self-development junkie. I'm Johnny Zeebach, former touring musician, concert promoter, and rock and roller. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women elite communication, networking, and connection skills in our world-famous training programs. That's right. Everything from these shows is packed into our in-person and online training programs. So you better ask us how. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Let's kick off today's show. We have none other than Daniel Pink with us. Daniel is the number one New York Times bestselling author of several books, including one of my favorites, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, To Sell is Human, and Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. His latest book just came out, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward, and we couldn't be more excited to talk about it. In this book, he looks at a study with over 16,000 participants and identifies four core regrets that almost everyone universally has. And then he explains his three-step process to transform regret into a positive force to actually improve our lives. Welcome to the show, Daniel. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Awesome. Well, I have to say you wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Drive. And the book really covers how human motivation is counterintuitive and the carrot stick approach doesn't really work when it comes to motivating people and teams. Can you share a little with our audience what you've learned about motivation over the years? Because I think regret is often a powerful motivator. Oh, interesting. That's a really good, that's a really interesting question. So, so for that book, Drive, AJ, what I, what I mentioned, what I, what I did is I went back and looked at about 50 years of science on human motivation. And what it tells us is that human beings are complex. Okay, we have we have a lot of different motivations. But I think that the core idea there in terms of, you know, work and school and individual performance is this, there's a certain kind of motivator that we use in organizations, psychologists call it a controlling contingent motivator. Too many syllables for me. I call it an if-then reward. As in, if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. Here's what 50, science, 50 years of science tells us, not about all rewards, but about if-then rewards. They're very good for simple tasks with short time horizons. So you want someone to stuff envelopes, pay them per envelope, no question about it. Human beings love rewards. And so when you give us a dangle of reward in front of us, we focus. However, the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards are less good for more complicated tasks with longer time horizons. Why is that? It's the same reason that, that it, it narrows our focus. And when you're doing something more complex, more conceptual, more complicated with a longer time horizon, you want to look expansively. And so the, the problem is, is that we use these event rewards for everything rather than the area where they work best. And if we want to actually refine how we motivate people in organizations, what we're going to need to do is pay them well, get rid of a lot of these event rewards, pay them well, 
give them a sense of, of autonomy, give them a chance to get better at something that matters, mastery, and attach them to some kind of purpose. That is a far better recipe for enduring motivation. And I think many are feeling a lack of all three of those areas with the great resignation and the way that work is rewarded in the current environment. I think it's a great point. I, you know, you know at, at some level, and I, I use this term intentionally, that the last two years, I can't even believe it's been freaking two years, but the last two <laughs> years have been a kind of an unmasking. Uh, and I think what pe- a lot of people, I think part of the great resignation, not all of it, is people looking at their jobs and saying, this is a terrible job. I'm not being treated well. I have no sovereignty over what I do or how I do it. I am not getting better at anything. I'm not contributing. What's the point? And so at some level, it's a wake-up call. I'll give you one more beat even on, even on, um, on autonomy, that, which is a, one of the central things that, that keeps people motivated over the long haul. Well, you know, When we think about autonomy, the, to me, the best way to understand it is to think about the opposite of autonomy, which is control. Human beings have only two reactions to control. We comply or we defy. That's it. And so if, but if, you, if you want people to actually engage, you got to give them some sense of self-direction. And this is why aut- autonomy is so central here. And we've had, uh, we've had this two-year experiment in giving people greater autonomy. And it worked. I wrote a book, guys, I wrote a book 20 years ago called Free Agent Nation about the rise of people working for themselves, where I was like, hey, there are going to be a lot of people self-employed and we're going to be working at home. And everyone says, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, (laughs) you can't trust people to work at home. And it's like, we can't possibly do that. And then, you know, around the world, 200 million people did it in four days. And as they say in my home state of Ohio... That's a hard egg to unscramble, man. You know, like and, and we've shown that you can trust people. And if we go back to these very controlling mechanisms, it's a, it's a disaster for organizations and people are going to leave. Now, what we're always fascinated about with all of our guests is how they actually apply what they've learned from the science in their own lives. How would you say you've utilized the science around motivation to help find drive yourself? I'll give you two in particular. So one of them is is what we know about from some great work from Teresa Mobile at Harvard Business School is that the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job is making progress and meaningful work. So the days that we make progress are the days we're meaningful. The trouble is, is that in many organizations, and certainly in, in remote work, we don't always have a sense of how we're doing. Are we making progress? So one of the things I've been doing probably for seven years, eight years maybe, is a progress ritual where at the end of every day, I write down, I I have a running document, what I got done. And so the idea is you take a punctuation mark in your day, literally 30 seconds, and like what you got done. You know, it's like, like I'm I'm a little bit more analog than a lot of people, but here I'm I'm showing, you know, my, this is my list of things to do to today, which are in paper with a pencil. But, you know, have you, okay, have you guys ever had a to-do list? And you guys ever used a to-do list? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> okay, in the old days, in the in the in the Johnny saying in the in the late nineteenth century, when he would get off his stagecoach and go into his log cabin, he would sometimes use a a a to do list. Okay, so here we go. So, have you ever done this? You got a to do list. You have the stuff on your list, but then you do something that's actually not on your to do list. Have you ever then written that on the to do list and crossed it off? That 
That's what we're talking about. We want to be. We want. We need a ritual in our days to help make progress. So that's what I do at the end of every day. Is I actually list the things that I got done, list the ways that I made progress. It's sixty seconds. At this point, I do it so regularly, it's hygienic. It's like brushing my teeth. One other thing that I do, especially when I'm stuck. Well, I'll give you an even better idea connected to this new book. All right, I got stuck on this new book, The Power of Regret, and. It was so bad. I was spinning my wheels. I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do here? And for the first time ever, and I, I reached out and I said, you know what? I think I need a coach. I think I need to coach my way through this. And I talked to this coach, a lovely guy, for literally like 15 minutes. He said, okay, I know what it is. You don't know the purpose of what you're doing. You have no purpose in this book. I think 15 minutes, he's already diagnosed it. And and he says, and so here's what I want you to do, Dan. We're gonna, he gave me an assignment. He said, I want you, we're done. I want you to send me an email with the purpose of this book. And I'm like, oh man, that's a, such a, you know. And, and so I thought about it and I delayed and I delayed. And finally I sat down and said, okay, like, why am I doing this? Like, what's the point of the exercise here? And I wrote this statement of like the purpose of the book. And I mean, <laughs> I literally have it on my wall. I'm, I'm sure, you know, literally have it on my wall. And I look at that when I get stuck. And so a lot of times when we get stuck, so here's the technique. When we get stuck, we focus on how am I going to do this? So I'm a writer. How should I write this paragraph? How should I structure this chapter? And when I get really stuck, I shift from the how conversation to a why conversation. Why am I writing this chapter? Why am I doing this? And it is, it's unlucky. And I think it's true when we're dealing with people in teams. So, you know, I have some people who help me out in various projects, wonderful people. And sometimes I will say, you know, I can be a pain in the ass and say, okay, here's how you need to do this. But when I, when I, when I, some, I often resist that and say, okay, hey, you know what, before we talk about it, let's talk about why we're doing this. Let's talk about why we're running this particular way of getting the message out. Let's talk about why we are writing the press release this way. And it's really, really helpful. I love that. And I certainly know in a lot of the work that we do at the Art of Charm, I will certainly get bogged down into a lot of points of, of getting stuck and forgetting why I'm doing things. And it's always been about taking a step back, asking what is the goal of this? What is the intention of what I'm doing here? Oh, oh, that's right. And it's, and it centers me and brings me right back to what I was doing and why. So that is a very powerful frame. Yeah, and, and the thing is what I like about it, what I like about the way that I do it, like, again, I, I, I'm a, I have a huge bias toward easy stuff and small wins because I think we're more likely to do it. And so this progress ritual at the end of the day takes me 60 seconds. You know, if, if it was like, Dan, take half an hour at the end of every day and write an essay that reflects on your sense of progress, never going to do that. Even this thing about even this like like this 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 purpose statement here that I wrote to unblock myself, I just I look over there. Sometimes I don't even read it. You know what I mean? But simply the just having it within the site. It so 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 quick. I'm just a big fan of quick, easy interventions that help you make a little bit of progress. I think what we found in a lot of our clients who have been struggling now with this move to remote work is the purpose 
was missing. And a lot of the socialization and the connectedness of being in the office together was replacing that purpose and masking itself as motivation. And now that they've been disconnected, we don't really know if our work is meaningful. We don't really know if it's actually moving the needle. And now with no purpose, you wonder, well, why am I doing this job? And many of us tend to focus on, well, financial earnings. But the pursuit of financial earnings is not a great purpose, <laughs> and it's certainly not going to lead to a meaningful life. It rarely does. I mean, you need to have a certain amount. I mean, you know, so I don't want to I don't want to dismiss that. Like, I don't want to use this research on motivation as an excuse for people, for companies, organizations not to pay people fairly. You have to pay people fairly. And, and people judge their pay with an eye toward that that fairness. If you don't pay people enough, you don't pay people fairly. They're not going to be motivated. But the idea that it's just a, it's just a, a bad theory of human motivation to say that human beings are singularly motivated by money and nothing else, and that money is the uber motivator for all people at all times. It's just not. It's it's just flatly not true. And that way of thinking about human beings that we are merely these responders to stimuli in our environment, the right carrot, the right stick. It doesn't explain a whole course of human behavior. We do things because we like them. We do things because they're interesting. Amazingly, we do things because it's the right thing to do. We do things because they help us learn and grow. We do things because they give us meaning. And that's a big, that's not an, the only human motivation, but it's also part of human motivation. And so all I'm saying, and if you look at the research, it's like, hey, organizations, why don't you take a three-dimensional view of human beings rather than this narrow-minded two-dimensional view? Well, I think our civilization would look a lot differently if our sole motivation <laughs> was money. <laughs> I don't know if we'd be here just talking right now if that was the case. Well, I mean, I think you make an interesting point that it's that it's on some level it's unsustainable. But if you look at the, the, the muscle memory of people in organizations and what they go to to try to repair and fix things, that's what they go to. Right. If you look at the structure most leaders are responsible to shareholders and shareholders care about profits and share value. And naturally, those who are most motivated by money are going to end up in those leadership roles because they then have the greatest impact for shareholders. But the problem is when it comes to managing people below you who don't share that same financial motivation with the loss of purpose, the loss of autonomy and no real opportunity to master anything, well, it's not a surprise that people are choosing autonomy, work for themselves, unplug great resignation. As we now talk about motivating through regret, one of the, the stories at the start of the book that I really enjoyed was this, this mantra that we all heard, no regrets, right? And many of us buy into this idea, YOLO, we certainly <laughs> want to live life to its fullest. Why is that a useless mantra? It seems so smart. Because everybody has regrets. If you say, if somebody tells you they don't have regrets, chances are you are talking to a five-year-old, someone with brain damage, or a sociopath. The rest of us have regrets. Now, and doing things to reduce the number of regrets we feel later on, that's totally fine. And there's a systematic way to do that. But the idea that this performed philosophy of no regrets, which we see all over the place. It's in songs. It's in, it's, there are 50 books in the Library of Congress with this title. We have, I mean, in this book that I wrote, I got people with tattoos, like a lot of people 
like not like one or two, but a lot of people with tattoos that say no regrets. And the thing is, it's not a healthy philosophy. Regrets are normal. Regrets are, if we treat them right, are healthy. Regrets serve a purpose. Regrets clarify our lives. They instruct us on how to go forward. And so to say that, go around saying I don't have any regrets is actually a form of delusion and, and an unhealthy delusion. Would you say that is the reason behind the idea of reclaiming regret to get back being comfortable with that idea so that you could use it as a motivator and propel you forward? Totally. I mean, that's exactly, I mean, the, my purpose statement here that I showed you guys earlier. Okay. The purpose of this book is to reclaim regret as an indispensable emotion. That's the whole, that's the, that's the, that's what I say on my, on this purpose statement that I wrote in the dark days when I couldn't get anything done. And what I wanted to do was get, what I wanted to do was get past this idea that people have, that if they feel regret, there's something wrong with them. That if they feel regrets, that they should just banish that thought. That if they feel regret, it's a sign of a disorder. It's healthy. But we have, and, and what's even more interesting, I think, is that if we actually take regret seriously, instead of this mindless no regrets philosophy, it teaches us a lot. It actually teaches us, I think, what makes life worth living. Now, I think regret in and of itself gets mislabeled and a lot of people consider rumination to be regret. So what is the difference between the two? And I, I think that nuance is important as we start to talk about the power behind regret. It is a great question. It is a great question. You want regret to operate like a sharp poke. Rumination is like a heavy blanket. All right. So and it's such a it's such an important point. We are not we don't do a good we and I, I say really Americans in, in, in some ways, we don't do a good enough job of dealing with negative emotions. Right. We need we need a we need a systematic way to deal with negative emotions. At some level, we are over indexed on positivity. We think that we should only have positive emotions, that positive emotions are the only thing that belong in your portfolio. And that's wrong. And that's dangerous. Negative emotions serve a purpose, but we have to deal with them properly. So when you face a negative emotion, including a negative emotion like regret, which is our most common negative emotion, you have a choice. Choice one, you can ignore it. You can say, feelings don't matter. I'm going to be pot. Okay, that leads to delusion. You can also, as you say very astutely, you can also wallow in it. You can say feelings are, oh, my God. It's like, oh, feelings are the only truth. Oh, my God. It's just there's no chance here. Oh, I'm just going to think about this and think about this and think about this and think about this and not use it as a not use the regret as a poke, but use it as like a warm bath to luxuriate in. That's really dangerous, too. What you want to do, what we want to say is that negative emotions, particularly our most common negative emotion of regret, that is a signal it's telling us something. We need to think about it. So feeling is for thinking. We get a negative emotion. It's like, oh, the world is trying to tell me something. I have to be awake and alert to what it's telling me. And then it is a powerful instrument for moving forward. I think one of the things that was some great insight in this book and, and illuminates everything is breaking up regret into four categories. It was, I think it's a lot easier to say, I have no regrets if you're not looking at it 
and a granular level. So once you started breaking it apart and I started going through all the different ones, there was regret that popped out that I realized that I feel now that I understood it better and was even discussing it with AJ before you came on. So if you, if you wouldn't mind, would you break those up into the four categories for us? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So let me, let me, as always, not directly answer your question, but meander into it. So the, <laughs> here's the thing, but it's a, it, it, there's an, it's an important meander. So when we think about regret, the way that's, that, that, you know, and again, it's like uh, some very great social scientists have studied regret in all of its dimensions. When we, we think about what people regret, they've often analyzed it. And I did this too in some work that I did, analyzed it by the domains of people's life. This is a career regret. This is an education regret. This is a health regret. And what I found is that that wasn't very revealing, exactly as you say, Johnny, because beneath those domains, is, there's something deeper going on. And let me, I think, give you an, illust an illustration about that. So I have, so what I did as, as part of this research is I collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. It's crazy. It's just an incredible trove of human stories and longing and aspiration. And I have, I, if you go to my database, I can find you literally hundreds of regrets that go like this. X years ago, there was a man slash woman who I really liked. I wanted to ask him her out. I didn't ask him her out and I've always regretted it. Okay. So that's a romance regret. Then you have people who say, I really regret not starting a business. Shouldn't have worked for somebody else. I really regret not starting a business. Okay. That's a career regret. Then you have people who went to college. Oh, I really regret not studying abroad. I was too chicken to do it. And now I regret it. That's an education regret. Those three regrets are the same. It doesn't, one is an education regret. Yeah. One is a career regret. One is a romance regret, but they're the same regret. It's a regret about boldness. You're at a juncture in your life. You can play it safe or take the chance. You play it safe, you regret it. And so, and so what I found is that, is that there are these four, so now I'm actually answering your question, Johnny. There are these four core categories of regret. One of them are what I call foundation regrets, which are regrets about essentially not doing the work, about making choices in your life that gave you an unstable platform. Smoking is a big one not taking care of your health, not exercising, not eating right, not working hard enough in school, those not saving enough money, that, those kinds of things. Now, those are sometimes complicated because they're not, those things are not always in somebody's individual domain, but individual choice, but foundation regrets. Second one, boldness regrets. If only I'd taken the chance. If only I'd taken the chance. To me, it, what it suggests is that human beings want to, it goes to our motivation conversation. Human beings want to do something. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to have a psychologically rich life. Three, moral regrets. Very interesting topic. Smaller in number, but fascinating in their own way. You're at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. You decide to do the wrong thing, and you regret it for years. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. I've got a woman in the book who would regularly steal candy from a store when she was 10 years old. She's always, she, she revealed that regret. It, it bothers the hell out of her. She's in her 70s. It happened 60 years ago. I have regrets about people bullying people, kids in school, all kinds of regrets about marital infidelity. People, it, it, I think there's something heartening about that, is that these moral regrets suggest that we actually want to be good. And when we're not, we, we feel terrible about it. The final one are connection regrets. Connection regrets are the biggest category. And it's basically, you have a relationship, I don't mean a romantic relationship, any relationship, you have a relationship with parent, a child, a sibling, a friend, whoever, and it sort of comes apart. And you want to reach out, but you think, ah, it's going to be awkward to reach out, and they're not going to care. So you don't reach out, and you drift further apart. And um, people deeply regret that. One of, to me, and I think it's relevant for, for some of the stuff that you guys have talked about before, is it's amazing how important friendship is in people's lives. I mean, there was a revelation to me. Like, friendship really, really, really matters to, in people's lives, more than I expected. And I think that more than many men are willing to see before their eyes, especially men, but women too, but especially men. And so the lesson there is, I mean, to me, that's been a big lesson for me that the connection regrets, because here's what, here's what happens. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Let's, let's take two characters. All right. They're, they're friends, but the friendship has come apart. And most of the time, these friendships come apart, not because of any cataclysm, because of any fight or anything like that. It just kind of drift. So we got two friends, Johnny and AJ, all right? They have a close relationship, but over time it starts drifting apart. And I, you know, and I say to, I say to AJ, okay, so, oh man, it's like, I, I sort of like, I had this friend and I was like really close and like somehow we just drifted apart and yeah, I should probably reach out, but it's really awkward and he's not going to care. You're so wrong about that. You're so wrong about that. Number one, there's a lot of evidence showing that it's much, those kinds of things are much less awkward than we think. And also, it's almost always well-received. And so what I've done to people in writing this book and reporting this out, the story kept changing on me because people would change their behavior in response to the conversation. But I said to one woman who had this kind of story, I said, well, what if Jennifer, like she, she'd grown apart from this one friend, what if Jennifer reached out to you? Oh my God, that would be the greatest thing. I would love it. I would be so touched. It would make my year. It would make my decade. And I'm like, well, you kind of answered your question there. I would argue that connection regret is the genesis of the show. Whoa. 15 years ago, and it's focus on relationships. And I think what's happened over the 15 years of doing the show is that with the rise of social media, with the rise of technology, 
we've over-indexed on actions and behaviors that don't foster real relationships, real deep friendships, being vulnerable, not showcasing your highlight reel, not high-fiving people when they have something to celebrate in their life, but being for them, there for them when the chips are down and opening up when the chips are down for you. And we see this time and time again with our clients. And we, we've asked a few guests, you know, what, what to do when you feel that disconnection happening. And I think this two-year period, we felt it across many of our relationships. Friends moving away for work, friends having health issues, obviously, during the pandemic. And just all of us being in this heightened sense of anxiety, we've let some of those relationships slide. And, and now we feel this pressure of how do I reconnect? How do I rekindle it? And you, you bring up such a great point that... It's not a matter of how, it's just a matter of do it. Any reaching out is going to be impactful. It's not what's the best way to do it, what does science say is going to get the warmest response. Time and time again, as you saw in your respondents, any reach out is going to be responded to well. I would like to stand up from my chair and shout amen right now. Because I think that is one of the biggest takeaways of this book. It's been the biggest takeaway for me, AJ. Here's the thing. If you are at a juncture where you have a relationship of any kind, you say, well, should I reach out? Should I say what I really, should I, should I tell somebody I love them? Let's get, let's get all gooey on us, all right? Should I tell somebody that I love them? Should I, should I reach out to someone who I haven't talked to for a while? If you are at the point where you're asking that question, you have answered it. Always, the takeaway for me is always reach out. If you're wondering whether you should reach out, the answer is yes. The act of the question gives you the answer. And, and one of the things that comes out, and there's some very, very interesting research on this, on, on a number of different domains, is that we often woefully overestimate how awkward we will feel about something and how uncomfortable will make other people. And there's uh, Vanessa Bonds has at Cornell has some great research on um, on compliments where it's like giving give people compliments. We're worried that if I give you a compliment, I'm worried like, oh, my God, and it's going to come out wrong. People don't care. You got a compliment. They love getting a compliment. They don't they're not evaluating how articulate you are. They're not evaluating. Oh, did he did he did he get the color of my of my glasses frames exactly right? It's just that there's a great there's a Nick Epley study in, in Chicago, a fascinating study where he went to um, he had people on the commuter train in Chicago and, and he had his his research. He had some people just get on the train as usual and he had other people and their job was to strike up a conversation with a stranger. OK, kind of uncomfortable. Right. And they said, well, how are you going to feel about that? And how are they going to the, the stranger going to feel about that? And then they and so their predictions was, oh. It's going to be awful. It's going to be totally uncomfortable. And the other, the other person's going to hate it. Get the results in. Eh, it wasn't comfortable at all. The other person, I kind of liked it. I mean, we're just, <laughs> it's one of those things that we're just really wrong on. So, well, we're wired for connection. And when we had Vanessa on the show, we, we talked about that. We over-index ourselves on how awkward something is going to feel. The other person is over-indexing on their own awkwardness as well. So they're missing your awkwardness. They're not feeling your awkwardness because they're so self-conscious of their own. And the surprise in all of this around the connection piece with it coming up, and, and I love all of the anecdotes in the book, is that small actions here repair all of that time lost. And you can pick things up again. 
it's not a matter of blame. It's not a matter of needing even to apologize. The simple act of saying, I'm thinking about you, I care about you enough in this relationship to reach back out is enough to repair that connection regret. I, I'm going to have to leap up from my chair again and shout hallelujah. <laughs> now, the other one that jumped out for me and Johnny is the boldness regret. I want to take it here because I, there was a, a, a small anecdote that I wanted to put here before we go into this. And the reason that I had gotten involved in self-development, it was moving into my 30s, late 20s, staring into my 30s. I realized that I had lived life in a certain manner and I had gotten certain results. And I didn't want to repeat those results in my 30s and realized that if I wanted different results, then I was going to have to make changes. And I decided to get involved in self-development as an opportunity to grow as a way to open myself up to new opportunities, to learn some skills, and to learn to do things differently. And the reason that I, was self, that I chose self-development as the vehicle to do that was that I felt that, that getting involved in that would allow me to not have regrets. And the, the regrets, the easiest ones for, for me to, to see at that time were boldness regrets, regrets of opportunity, doing things differently to receive different results. And because as a young man, you don't have any other results to compare things to. You're only getting the results to, of the actions and behaviors that you have. So what else is, is there? And how do I fig find that out? And so of course, I didn't want to get to the end of my life saying what if or if only. So I chose self-development as that vehicle. And I'm glad that I did because, hey, who knows uh, where the art of charm would or wouldn't be if, if I hadn't chosen that path and had met AJ. Again, I mean, you guys are going to give me my day's workout because I'm going to leap up from my chair again. I mean, I think that that is the, that is the lesson. And, and, and you make an interesting point, Johnny or I can sort of put a little bit of data behind the point that you're making. One of the things that happened there, if you look at, if you analyze, and I've done some quantitative research and some qualitative research and looked at some of the academic research on this, and at least in my reading of things, there is remarkably little variation in what people regret, in, in the nature of regret based on, uh, there's some on, a little bit on gender, but not much. There's a tiny little bit on race. There's almost, there's very little on nationality. But on age, there's one important big difference, and, and you hit it, which is that in, when people are 20, they have the, but there, there are two kinds of, there are many kinds of regret, but the two sort of cornerstones of it are action regrets, I regret what I did, and action regrets, I regret what I didn't do. At age 20, we have about equal numbers of action and inaction regrets. But as we get older, just a little bit older, 30s, 40s, 50s, inaction regrets predominate. And, and you're, so the story that you're telling there is a story that is a story verified by the data. The older we get, the more we regret not taking that chance. The things that we didn't do rather than things that we did do, in part because some things that we did do, we can repair. Now that boldness requires action, right? So playing it safe is often inaction. Being bold is taking action. So what it's curious to me is in those moments where you're bold and you fail and you're bold and you choose the wrong option, what is that regret around the boldness and choosing wrong versus the inaction regret that we're talking about? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And and what I found is that when I'll give you an example of it for like starting a business, which was a big regret. So I had people who started a business and it failed and said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. No question. But for every one of those, I probably had 25 who regretted not doing it. At the same time, I have people and there's somebody there's somebody in the book who started a business. It failed and actually didn't regret it because what he because he's sort of looking at the counterfactual and saying, you know, I would have regretted not trying this. And now I tried it and it's fine. I sort of got that out of my system. So some people do regret taking a chance and failing. There's no question about that. But they're just overwhelmed by the number of people who have the different kind of regret. And not everybody. And and surprisingly, I was surprised by this is only anecdotal, but I was surprised by the number of people who took a risk, failed and actually didn't regret it. Didn't because because what they what they were really focused on was the act itself, not the outcome. The act itself, they had some control over the outcome. They don't have full control over. One of the other studies that I really enjoyed seeing, and I would love to hear some some more thoughts on this, was that even people who turned up their boldness in just a bit uh, saw an uptick in their happiness and their fu- and their fulfillment. And that answers a lot of questions for the work that we do at The Art of Charm. Certainly, it's somebody who hears a podcast and went out maybe because they heard Vanessa Bonds or us talking about compliments and decided, I'm going to do more conf- compliments this week. And then they write, and like, my whole world has been blown apart. <laughs> it's totally, my, the, how I'm going about the day now has completely changed because of this tiny little action that had such a large change in, in, in how I feel. Absolutely right. Um, and, and one of the things, it's, it's a great point. One of the things that, that comes up over and over again as a, one of the kinds of boldness regrets is that people regret not asserting themselves. They regret not speaking up. Um, and I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who was talking about his regrets. And he said sort of sheepishly, oh, yeah, it's like a couple months ago. I was at this gathering, social gathering, and somebody said something kind of offensive. And I should have said something, but I didn't. And it still really bugs me. And I'm like, okay, dude, you're not alone. Like, there are so many people with regrets about speaking up, about asserting themselves. And just, and as you say, Johnny, notching that up just a little bit, there is, I mean, I have to say, you know, I am a, I am on the introverted side of the introvert extrovert spectrum. I mean, I grew up to become a writer. I sit in a room by myself most days, right? And I like it. So, but the evidence is pretty clear that if you can sort of try to be tiny bit more extroverted, you're probably going to be a tiny bit happier. Uh, even though I might not like that conclusion as someone who's with my personality type, I think the evidence is pretty clear that that those small acts of speaking up, of asserting yourself, of saying hello, of engaging. If you get over the hump, you feel better. For our live programs, one of the things that I would always lead off with is, and we would find a lot of our our clients would be on the, on that spectrum a bit onto the introverted side. And I've always told them, this is not about turning you introverts into an extrovert. It's about giving you some skills that, that allow you to be a little bit more extroverted in an extroverted rewarded world. So just a couple of these things that we sprinkle in and you're going to see the benefits from that in your regular life. And you don't have to make radical changes. That's exactly right. And, and, and in, in another book, I wrote a little bit about this, this, how wrong we've gotten some of the introvert extrovert conversation and that there's, you know, we think of it as this, it's all Myers-Briggs's fault. We think of it as this 
binary. You're, you're either one or another. Yep. When in fact, it's a, it's a spectrum. And most people are located toward the middle of the spectrum. And um, so most of us are ambiverts. That is, we're neither hardcore introverts or hardcore extroverts. We're a little bit of both. And one of the things, there, there's, there's some evidence showing that the people who are most effective are the ones who are actually closer to the middle because they're, they're ambidextrous. They, they can go left, they can go, you know, it's like in a sport, you can go left, you can go right. And so most of us are ambiverts. And so what you're suggesting is not, you don't, you don't go from being kind of a quiet person to being, you know, dancing on the table with a light lampshade on your head like this, you go a little bit more toward the center and you go to a little bit more to the center, I think you're going to feel better and you're going to perform better in most cases. The key is just having more tools at your disposal. You know, as an introvert, if you just approach everything with a hammer, it's going to be very difficult to build the house. Sometimes you're going to need a screwdriver. You're going to need a wrench. So learning these and having these tools at your disposal, there are times where you should clam up and listen <laughs> and validate emotions. And there are other times where you as a leader have to stand up and speak up. So we can't look at it as either or. And I love that we made that distinction. What stands out to me around the inaction versus action, and we're going to talk a little bit about what to do with regret and how to use it in, in a meaningful way, is you can't really take a lesson out of inaction. You can't really, by not doing something, there's nothing to learn. By taking the safe road, by not speaking up, by not being bold, by playing it safe, what is the lesson? It's the action that allows the lesson to happen. So even in failure, you can take that lesson and now know, hey, you know, that entrepreneurship, that's not for me. I don't want to be my own boss. I actually like having a nine to five. Or you know what? Opening that dry cleaning business, I hate that business. I don't like dealing with customers. But that's a lesson that you can learn out of action. In action, there's really nothing to be gained. Exactly. Except at some level, you've identified why it's a regret because it lingers with you. It, it sort of sticks in your craw. It's not, it's not hot. It's kind of a dull pain. And you just can't, you, you can't shake it. It's like getting something caught in your tooth. I choose your, choose your metaphor. And I think that's why it sticks with people. And you have to, you have to, you have to do something about it. The other thing about action regrets, if you have a regret about an action and is, is that you, you know, let's say that you treated somebody unkindly or you did something dishonest um, and people have regrets about that. In some cases, you can undo those. You can you can take an action to reverse the, the the damage. You can do something to make restitution. You can you can do that. the other thing. The other thing about action regrets is that you can act in some of them, and it's very psychologically healthy in certain cases. Is you can you can make it less painful by in an action regret of finding the silver lining. So somebody I talked to again, I mean yesterday, uh, talked about how oh, his big career regret was taking a job at a certain company, which was a disaster. But he said, well, at least I've met my wife. Uh, so he met his wife at this place. Uh, I have I have in my database, Ken, hunt, uh, the universality of these things is crazy. I could probably find you right now 100 people, 99, 99 of them women who have a regret that goes like this. I shouldn't have married that person, but at least I have these two great kids. Find the silver lining. It softens the blow a little bit. But with inaction regrets, you're right. They gnaw at you. They stick with you. And you. And the thing is, you have to listen to that signal and then do something about it. Now, you touched on the foundational regret. And I, I just want to highlight this for the audience because I, I think it's important. It goes along with what you said at the start of the interview, over-indexing on small wins. These foundational regrets, whether it's health or retirement, these require small actions. 
And a lot of times the regret happens because you're at a point where no, no big action is going to make up all that compounding interest. No big action is going to make up your cholesterol being through the roof. So when we think about foundational regrets, I just want to highlight that for the audience because that's really where the small wins pay off over the long haul. And when we look at the Harvard Happiness Study and those people on their deathbed, those foundational regrets all are based on small, repetitive actions. There's no ability for you to undo that. Is what Einstein said, you know, the most powerful force in the universe is compounding interest. It's hard for our minds to process that, and it can work for us or it can work against us. And when you, when people talk about their foundation regrets, there's a scene in, in A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway where these two characters are talking, and uh, one guy describing how he went bankrupt. He, he went bankrupt in this business. And the other guy says, well, how'd you go bankrupt? And he says, gradually, then suddenly. And that's how people get to these foundation regrets, gradually, then, then, then suddenly. And it's a hard, and, and so it's, it's really important to, to get those small wins and to do the work. Now, you do point out in the book, the foundation attribution error that we can over-index on our own personal responsibility yeah. and not necessarily the situation or the circumstance that we're in. Can you unpack that a little bit for our audience? Sure, sure. That's a play on, on something called the, 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 the fundamental attribution error, where we it's, an, it's a, a trap door that Americans fall down more than any other nationality. So when we try to describe someone's uh, behavior, predict someone's behavior, we overweight the importance of their personality, their disposition, and underweight the importance of the context that they're in. We are driven by context. And so I think it's possible that we can make another error with foundation regrets. So when we look at somebody who gets to the point in their life, they're 45 years old, and, oh, my God, I haven't saved any money. Well, maybe they started their career burdened with student loans in contrast to someone else who didn't have that burden. Uh, maybe someone said, ah, oh, I wish I would have worked harder in college. They may say, well, maybe you know, we have to understand, maybe that person is a first generation student, didn't have enough mentors, didn't have the support in a big university to, to do that. It's not. And, and one of the things about regret is that it, it feels bad is that it's our fault, that there's a, there's a sense of agency. There's a difference between feeling regretful and feeling disappointed. Disappointed is just external things. And so with foundation regrets, we have to be careful about attributing all foundation outcomes to individual action. Although, to be fair, sometimes it is a lot of individual action. And so we can't go one way or another. If you have, a, if you have health problems because you have an unhealthy diet and you're living in a food desert because there's no grocery store near you, that's to me is that's 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 the, that attributing that attributing that person's ill health to his own actions rather than the circumstances is a is the foundation attribution error. That said, we still have to believe in some form some amount of, of agency here, and we do have some control over our foundation, and we need to get those small wins and put in the work. I think that's where a lot of reflection is important in distinguishing these things. It's easy to jump to conclusions around any one of those four types of regrets. And I think now as we start to unpack, okay, well, we understand the power and the impact and many in our audience are, are feeling regret right now, <laughs> reflecting on some actions or inactions in their life. How can we use regret for a positive impact in our lives? What we have to do is, 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 again, recognize that regret is trying to tell us something and be open to listening. 
And I feel like there's a process that we, I'm convinced there's a process, a fairly systematic process we can go through. So some of it involves like, how do you treat yourself? And there's a tendency uh, when we make a mistake, you can say, oh, I'm awesome anyway. Or you can say, I'm the worst person in the world, right? One is self-esteem, the other is self-criticism. There's a lot of research on this. What it shows is that self-esteem is overvalued. Self-esteem has a lot of downsides. And some of it's good, but it has a lot of downsides. It can lead to narcissism. It can lead to lack of effort and so forth. Self-criticism, which I am a strong believer in. But when I went looking for the evidence of its effectiveness, there, it was almost non-existent. It's like it's, it, it doesn't really do a hell of a lot. The better approach is something called self-compassion, which is essentially tr- which is the work of Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. She is – have you guys had her too? Recent guest, yeah. Yeah, okay. So there you go. So it's like it's the, the art of charm mafia is taking over our thoughts. So right. So you know this work on Kristen Neff about essentially, you know, we would never say to our friends some of the things we say to ourselves. And, that, and then self-compassion is treating yourself the way with, with kindness rather than with contempt, with seeing what you're doing as part of the human condition, not as a final judgment on your validity as a human being. So that is a way to normalize and neutralize some of those regrets. Then there's, it, it's very important to talk about them, disclose them or write about them for, for two purposes. One is that disclosure reduces the burden a little bit. Uh, And the other equally important thing is that when we disclose either in written form or in writing, we actually take this blobby emotion and make it concrete with words. And that ends up taking some of the pain out of it. It's some very interesting research showing that when we write about negative emotions, they feel less negative. But when we write about positive emotions, they feel less positive. So we should be we should be sort of trying to make write about and talk about our negative emotions because it helps relieve the burden and aids in the sense making. And when we disclose them to other people, we fear once again our instincts are wrong. We fear that disclosure will make people like us less. Nope. There's evidence showing that it makes us like us more like us more when we when we show this kind of vulnerabilities, exactly what we were talking about earlier, AJ. And then finally, extract a lesson from them. And the way you extract a lesson from them is getting away from it. Sort of getting away in time. Ten years from now, what what would you want to do with this regret? You're feeling this terrible regret. You have showed yourself some compassion. You have disclosed it and made sense of it. Now, ten years from now, what do you want? Like, okay, they'd say AJ of the AJ of 2032. What do you want the AJ of, of uh, 2022 to do right now with this? And you know the answer to that. Other ways of doing what would you tell your best friend to do in this? All right. What you want to do is you want some distance from it. We're much better off solving other people's problems than our own. And so you extract that lesson and you find the next opportunity to apply it. Let's go to the, the guy who talked about speaking up. It's like, if you have that regret about speaking up, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the next circumstance where you're going to where you have a chance to speak up. And I want you to commit to speaking up in that moment. And what you've done is you've taken this negative thing, extracted a lesson from it and applied it to your future behavior. So this is it go, it's fundamentally how regret can make us better if we deal with it, right? One of the strategies I really liked in the book was a failure resume. And what stands out to me a a lot, especially with working with our clients, is that we over-index on immediate failure and and how close we are to that exact failure. But if we reflect on, you know, failure in undergrad, failure in high school, are we still holding on to it? Are we still in a lot of ways as 
motivated or demotivated by it? Most likely not, unless it rises to the level of regret. So this idea of cataloging failures and reflecting on it and realizing that it's okay to be imperfect. And what, what strikes me as interesting is sort of the relationship between perfectionism, which oftentimes is, again, the pursuit of no regrets and no failure, and, and our regret and how we shape and motivate ourselves to take action in the future. So was there anything that struck you around the science behind perfectionism and its relationship with regret? Yeah, I actually don't make that connection explicitly in the book. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really smart point, and, and it's something to be thinking. It, it, it has to do a little bit with this idea that, that the happy life is about maximizing everything. And that's, I mean, we know this, this is not even, a, this is like, you take social psychology at any university anywhere in America, and you're going to get the f five minutes on one lecture about this, all right, about, you know, they're maximizers, and it's important, I don't think enough people know this, they're maximizers and satisficers, maximize, trying to get the, do the best on every single thing, satisficers, you know, some things, some things are good enough. And I think that in some ways, the secret of life is to figure out what do you satisfy on? And what do you maximize on? And the the those four core regrets, those are what you maximize on because those matter. Your foundation matters. Your boldness matters. Your morality matters. Your connection matters. Other stuff doesn't matter. So maximize. What shirt should I wear today? Oh, let me maximize that decision. Who cares? What color car should I buy? Blue or gray? Who cares? Satisfice. What should I have for dinner? Satisfice. Should I should I reach out to an old friend? Maximize. That's important. Should I put in the time to save money and exercise and maximize? Should I do the right thing? Maximize. But everything else just satisfies on. And and I, and, and knowing that difference to me, like I wish someone had told me that, like I mean, literally forty years ago, because I think I'd be a happier person. Well, I think that was illustrated really well in the book with the, the, the Olympic swimmers and the if only and at least where the, the bronze recipient got, well, hey, at least I got a medal and the silver is left thinking, well, if only I trained harder, if only I was able to, to lengthen that, that, that stride. That's part of what it is. The, 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 the bronze medalists, some famous studies have show, uh, replicated many times showing that Bronze medalists seem to be happier than silver medalists in many cases. And uh, the reason is, is that it's like, you know, the all important question in life is compared to what? You know, I got a bronze medal. Well, compared to getting fourth place and no medal, I am pumped. I'm great. <laughs> I got a silver medal. Compared to what? Ah, oh, compared to being, you know, two one hundredths of a second shy of a gold medal. This is I'm never going to I'm never going to forget this. I'd love to just touch on the the fourth category that we haven't really talked about morality, because we hear in common discourse, a narrative that with the loss of religion, we're becoming immoral and morality is just not as important. So what did you find in your book around those morality based regrets? And, and what are you taking away from the study? Okay, so morality is complicated, because you and I agree that starting a business rather than staying at a lackluster job is boldness. You and I agree that you should save for mo save money, that that's prudent. When it comes to morality, we don't have full uniformity across the population about what constitutes what's moral. And, and, some, and, some, and some things we do. So we have 
uh, like we shouldn't harm other people. We shouldn't cheat other people. Almost everybody agrees with that. But when it comes to things that are more politically controversial, uh, things like uh, I'll give you something more mundane. Should kids call adults by their first name or should they call them Mr. or Ms. so-and-so? There is a bitter divide over that in the parents of America. And nobody's right and nobody's wrong. It's just different notions of the moral taste bud, as John Haidt calls it, of, of, um, of authority. Uh, how much respect do you have for authority? I have people, I have people in my book who, who regret not serving in the military. And I totally empathize with that. But there are other because I, I, I have that's I actually have that regret myself. But you have other people who say, what the heck? What do you have? Why do you regret that? Uh, so let's we'll talk about something. Let's talk about something completely uncontroversial abortion. I have a not insignificant number of people in those in this survey who regret having abortions. And, you know, and some people and again, so we don't have full, full, full agreement on, on morality. What we do have is two aspects of morality where there is agreement, which is you shouldn't harm people and you shouldn't cheat people. That seems pretty clear. And when we harm people or cheat people, when we cheat in school, when we steal stuff, when we're unkind to other people, when we bully people, when we're unfaithful to our spouse, most of us, huge, 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 huge majorities of feel bad about that. And, and as I said earlier, guys, I think that's a good sign. It suggests that we want to be good. Well, I think society in general, and we see this with the rise in cynicism, the distrust of institutions, is we're looking for the cheaters to not get ahead. We're looking for those that harm others to have a consequence. And it, it appears that a lot of the elites are removing consequences from these immoral bad behaviors. And I'm curious if over time that's going to lead to an influx in moral regret or a decline in moral regret as we start to see those that we look up to in positions of power acting immorally with no consequence. I think it's a possibility. It certainly goes with something you mentioned in the book that John Haidt had brought up, which is the spirituality aspect, how it sort of broadens or narrows certain ways of looking at a moral argument. Exactly. That's exactly right. And AJ, you mentioned religion. I mean, that's a that's an interesting topic. I mean, again, I'm not a religious person at all, but I look at the evidence and it seems very clear that having religious faith is is good for you that people tend to be healthier and happier if they have a religious faith. Uh, not, not always, not in every single case, not in every single circumstance, but overall. And the, I think the reason for that is a sense of purpose and also a community that cares about you. So I don't, I don't necessarily tie increases that we see in America in deaths of despair, in suicide, in loneliness. I don't, I'm not convinced that it's necessarily tied to the decline in organized religion because I think people are, finding those things, community and purpose, other ways. But, you know, again, a card-carrying non-believer, I look at the research on religion and I'm saying, wow, this is pretty darn good for you. Yeah. And we've had a few guests bring that up as well, Paul Bloom being a, a most recent one. And we love to ask every guest what their X factor is, what it is that makes you extraordinary. What do you think your X factor is, Daniel? My ex what makes me extraordinary? I don't know. That's the sort of Midwestern in me sort of cringes at even that formulation of the of the, of the question. We're both Midwestern, um, so I know what you're saying. I'm going to give you two things that's helped me more than anything else is that I tend to be curious, I think. I try to be curious about things. And 
I think that's really helpful. So I think that's, I think curiosity is, is one of them. And the other one is that uh, I show up and I am a big believer in showing up. So for instance, writing a book, ginormous pain. You don't have to be that smart. You don't have to be that smart, but you have to show up. You have to show up every single day. So I think if you're curious, so for me, it's like, I feel like if I'm, if I stay curious and I show up, I'll be okay. That's a very Midwestern answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe I see it. And I, I believe so based on the work that you've done in the books that we've read and enjoyed that curiosity. I think many of us jump to conclusions around regrets. We jump to conclusions around motivation as we started this episode. And it's important to keep that curiosity to move beyond the counterintuitive results and look at the science. So thank you for joining us, Daniel. Really appreciate the latest book. Where can our followers and guests and listeners learn more about you? You can just go to my website, which is www. Do people still say www? www.danpink.com. No. <laughs> D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. Danpink.com. Every, and, and the book is available, of course, as they say, wherever books are sold. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Johnny, I have to say that almost universally, every client in our X Factor Accelerator has bold regrets. In fact, that's one of the biggest reasons they work with us. And breaking down those four types of regrets with Daniel was so informative to understand how our own psychology works either against us or for us. Absolutely. And regret is the whole reason I got involved in self-development in the first place. I didn't want to be on my deathbed thinking about all the things that I regretted not doing. I want to be there laughing and carrying on about all the crazy stuff that I did do. Now, this week's shout out is a little different. I know we talk a lot about all the success our clients are having in their personal and professional relationships, but this one goes out to X Factor member Justin, who made this month's weight goal. See, Justin has been given the X Factor is all, and we're incredibly proud of the work he's put in. Building new healthy habits is not easy, especially on your own, and working towards your goals can be a drag if you don't have the proper support. And that's why we love the X Factor Accelerator community. Not only are you pushing yourself, the feedback you get and the support from other participants is incredibly helpful and motivating. So thank you for motivating all of our members, Justin. Awesome job. You might be wondering, is this it? Is this all there is? Is this going to be the rest of my life? If you asked yourself that question, then you've gotten uncomfortable with being comfortable. You have come to the conclusion that you want more out of life and you're not done. And if that's the case... Join us, the Art of Charm team, and our incredible clients, people just like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, and growing an incredible network inside of the X Factor Accelerator. The X Factor Accelerators, where high achieving and like minded people meet, strategize, and unlock their hidden X Factor to make the most out of life's opportunities and unlock those doors, keeping you from success. You start every month with an intense goal setting strategy session weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice all of those communication skills, including rapport building, supercharging your charisma through powerful communication, and building the charm to attract the right people into your life. Are you ready to win at love, work, and life in 2022? Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with the Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. 
That's unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, go out there and have an epic week.